Well, thank you all for uh, coming today. Uh, my name is Christopher Preble. I'm the director of, uh, <laughs> he's the director. I'm the vice president for defense and foreign policy studies here at Cato. Where am I? Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, thank you all for coming. Um, welcome also to those of you watching us online at uh, Cato.org. Thanks as always to our conference staff uh, who do so much to help make these events come off without a hitch. Um, the United States, Barry Posen argues in this new book, very new, brand new, hot off the presses, Restraint, the United States has grown incapable of moderating its ambitions in international politics. Since the collapse of Soviet power, it has pursued a grand strategy that he calls liberal hegemony, one that Posen sees as unnecessary, counterproductive, costly, and wasteful. Restraint explains precisely why liberal hegemony works poorly and then provides a carefully designed alternative grand strategy and associated military strategy and force structure. In contrast to the failures and unexpected problems that have stemmed from America's consistent overreaching, Barry makes an urgent argument for restraint in the future use of US military power. Uh, Posen's alternative focuses on protecting US global access through naval, air, and space power while freeing the United States from most of the relationships that require the permanent stationing of US forces overseas. Now, I will say at the outset that I would like to believe that this uh, is a book whose time has come. Uh, the caveat is that I said the same thing about my own book uh, five years ago uh, and about the paper that Ben Friedman and I uh, co-authored in 2010 uh, entitled Budgetary Savings from Military Restraint, which was published here at Cato. Um, Two factors, however, uh, might make Barry's book a success. One is the fiscal situation, which he references on a number of occasions in this book. That situation was not clear at the time that I wrote and published The Power Problem, nor was it clear even at the time when Ben and I uh, published the restraint paper in 2010, uh, because public opposition to spending hadn't really manifest itself, and especially uh, against military spending, which up to that point had traditionally gotten a pass. But within the last two years, of course, we've seen the Pentagon's base budget actually declined. Of course, the spending for the wars had come down, but the base budgets actually declined modestly, uh, and I think that decline will continue. So fewer resources for the military should translate into fewer missions for the military, and Barry's book lays out very clearly uh, why that is and what those missions, what those remaining missions should be. But the other factor uh, why I invited Barry to discuss this book and why I think it might be more successful than the previous attempts is Barry uh, himself. And I, and I learned about uh, him working. I, I learned that he was preparing a book-length treatment of some sort that built on some of the articles he wrote. He wrote an article about restraint back in the American interest in what, 2007, right, Barry? That was 2007, totally uh, around, that, around that time. And I said at the time, I said, when this book is finished, Whenever it's finished, uh, you have to come and talk about it at Cato. So here he is. Uh, I've been following his work since my undergraduate days. The Sources of Military Doctrine was required reading. And in spite of the fact that it was required reading, I actually read it. Uh, and, uh, and since then, I came to Cato. And, and Barry and I have encountered each other at various meetings around the, around the city, around the country, actually. Uh, but this is the first time that we've welcomed him here to Cato. Uh, and it's really my, my pleasure and privilege to, 
to be moderating today and to welcome him to talk about his book. Just a few words about Barry for those of you who don't know. He is the Ford International Professor of Political Science at MIT, Director of the MIT Security Studies Program, and he serves on the Executive Committee of Seminar 21. Before joining K uh, MIT in 1987, he worked as a consultant for RAND, he worked at the <coughs> Department of Defense, he worked at the CSIS, Center for Strategic International Studies, and he also taught political science at Princeton. Uh, in addition to the sources of military doctrine, which I mentioned, he is also the author of Inadvertent Escalation, Conventional War and Nuclear Risks, and many articles. He's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, Rockefeller uh, Foundation International Affairs Fellow, a number of guest fellowships. He was recently at the jo uh, John Sloan Dickey Center at Dartmouth College, and Barry earned his MA and PhD from the University of California at Berkeley. So with that, please join me in welcoming Barry Posen. These lights are <laughs> right. Something. Um, thanks for the gracious introduction and the invitation to be here. Thank you all for coming out. Thanks to the two of you for agreeing to look at this thing and provide some criticism. Um, so, just to tell you a little bit about what the book looks like and then sort of sketch out the argument, um, the book basically has four parts. Um, it has a little section where I talk about the evolution of U.S. grand strategy in the post-Cold War period, um, and then a pretty long chapter that's a critique of how that grand strategy has um, unfolded since the Cold War ended, uh, a third section on kind of the political diplomatic aspects of an alternative strategy, and the fourth section, um, which is about uh, force structure and defense budgets. Um, those of you who follow my career will basically say, you just wrote about what you like to think about. And, uh, and I did. And given that, it shouldn't have taken me seven years or eight years to write this thing. But, you know, I had a day job. So uh, I should say at the outset that um, you know, I have a, in this book, I kind of take a, a very classical approach to thinking about these questions. So for me, grand strategy is about national security. And national security... It's about a handful of really important questions, which is threats to your territory, threats to your sovereignty, threats to your safety, and threats to the power position that allow you to protect these other three things in essentially an, an anarchical world, right? A grand strategy is a kind of a theory about how to create security, a kind of political military means ends chain. It should be accompanied by some sort of reasoned explanation for why the means ends chain is expected to work. And as strategists have long advised us, because resources are always scarce, a grand strategy has to set priority. So that's, you know, that's my basic approach coming in. And you all know that you know, I've already settled half the argument by telling you that this is my basic approach and not some other approach. Definitions, in some cases, are everything. Um, now, my view about US grand strategy, which I call liberal hegemony, which is a term that I think maybe John Eikenberry was the first to use is that this has essentially become the consensus grand strategy of the United States. There's not really very much difference between the mainstream Republican defense establishment, foreign policy establishment, mainstream Democratic foreign policy, Democratic uh, foreign policy and national security establishment on what the grand strategy is. And in this grand strategy, pretty much everything matters, from terrorism to failed states to rising powers to revanchist powers. Um, and to the protection of timorous allies, pretty much everything matters, right? And uh, I, I wasn't at West Point for the president's speech, but um, I, I reviewed the speech, and I was actually sort of surprised that 
the reaction that it elicited that this was somehow some sort of a, a restraint document, because I think the word restraint was used in the strategy in one place. <laughs> if you read the president's speech, it's the same strategy. It's a liberal hegemony strategy, kind of kinder, gentler, a little more focused, but it's, it's, it's the strategy. Why liberal, why hegemony? Hegemony because it's based on the great US advantage and its power position that it had when the Cold War ended, and it, in some sense, fetishizes sustaining that advantage, which is very hard to do. And it's liberal because it aims to um, build a liberal world order, build and sustain a liberal world order, but also to liberalize other countries. So it's, it has a liberal aspect to it, both in terms of the way it looks at the internal workings of other countries, the way it looks at international politics, and it's the United States' job to use its great power to make the world more liberal. And this consensus was really born of the way the Cold War ended, with the United States in such a preeminent position, and with a kind of self-confident muscular liberalism being the victor over a, you know, a kind of a sclerotic totalitarian um, system. Um, but there's something odd that happened after the Cold War ended. Uh, and it, you know, it, Bob Work, who's now our Deputy Secretary of Defense, uh, he basically, uh, he had a briefing he was giving for a while, and I think you can still find it online at the Naval War College. And it shows something interesting, that in the post-Cold War world, the United States has been at war about twice as often as it was during the Cold War. Now, the wars aren't necessarily worse. The casualties aren't necessarily worse. You can debate about what you call a war or not. But it's a little odd for a country that's as secure as we were when the Cold War ended to be at war so often. So there's a puzzle here. There's something going on, right? We've been very energetic. Um, now, this project, I argue, is unnecessary. And it's unnecessary for the classical reasons that geopoliticians have adduced when they talk about US foreign policy for, you know, for a long time. The US is a rich country in terms of industrial and technological capacities and in terms of natural endowments. Um, the US sits behind these vast oceans. Uh, the US is blessed with relatively weak and pliant neighbors to the north and south. The US has nuclear weapons and therefore cannot be conquered. The U.S. has a terrific military backed by a talented research and development community and a defense industry that can build fantastic weapons if you give it enough time and enough money. Um, and people who often worry about America's trade position, uh, yes, trade in America GDP has grown as a share, but a big chunk of that trade is in this hemisphere, about a third. Um, and then when you look at the rest of American trade, it's distributed across many countries, right? So many, many bad things would have to happen to close the world off to American trade. And of course, the biggest concentration of American trade is with our erstwhile adversary, China. So if you're protecting international trade, you're protecting the rising power that you're then targeting your military against. So we're a tail chase problem here in our grand strategy. Now, you know, you stole my thunder. As I said, I believe the strategy is unnecessary, counterproductive, costly, and wasteful. Um, the military, political, and economic costs of the strategy are rising, and they're destined to rise even more for some reasons that I'll discuss. Now, what is my lens for looking at some of these problems? Well, my lens is realism. I, I, you know, I, I studied with Kenneth Waltz, and some people would argue I was hardwired at birth with only one or two theories, and I can't get them out of my head. That's one of them. So this is sort of the way I look at the world. Um, so one thing realists imagine is in the face of great power, other states will balance. And we're seeing some balancing in the world, less than you might have expected, but some. Some states are building or rebuilding their military capabilities, you know, China and Russia. Um, some capable states are concerting action to try and make America's life a little more difficult in its project. Russia and China would be another. 
Um, some states, even states that are allies of ours, occasionally throw monkey wrenches at American projects when it's cheap to do so. Um, so we push with great power. Others will push back. And this makes the project more costly than you might imagine when you start it. Another thing realism sort of suggests is that pretty much every state is out for its interests. And this means that America's allies are not loving partners. America's allies are, are states like any others. And um, we've seen two characteristic kinds of action on the part of American allies that um, are really not in our interests. Um, one is that it's cheap riding, sometimes referred to as free riding, but really cheap riding. Um, it's an old saw of this business that Europe and Japan spend much smaller shares of GDP on defense than does the US. Japan about 1%, Europeans about 1.6. The Americans have varied since the Cold War ended. I think we almost got down to three in the Clinton administration, but I think we back up closer to four in the, for the wars, not counting the wars themselves. Um, our allies' defense budgets actually diminished in real terms since the Cold War ended or remained flat. The Japanese defense budget is a little hard to read sometimes. Um, Though ostensibly allied and supportive of some US projects, the allies don't contribute much when the chips are down from a resource point of view. I always put in a caveat here, because I, I respect the sacrifices of European soldiers. Many of them died for the cause in Afghanistan. Uh, they sacrificed a lot for the common good, uh, but they've done so under a variety of operational and tactical constraints and resource limitations that are dictated by their government's cheap riding policies. We have other allies who are so secure in America's embrace that they drive recklessly. This is another problem that's not often discussed. Um, some of them are not even American allies. They just think they are. The Georgian government drove recklessly. Taiwan at times has driven recklessly. The Maliki government has been driving recklessly, and it just crashed into something for its reckless driving. The Karzai government drives recklessly. <coughs> who knows when the next crash will come there. Israel, the state that I actually admire, um, I think often drives recklessly. The United States doesn't do much to discipline it. Um, secure in our embrace, they do things that friends of theirs might say are problematical for them, but whether they're problematical for them or not, they're problematical for us. And we don't seem to be able to do very much about it. And this increased the costs of our engagement, our liberal hegemonic policy. Now, there's another phenomenon that's going on in the world, though. The Cold War ended with the Americans in this rather preeminent position. Um, I think most people who look at the trends would say that something's happening with the trends to narrow the gap between the Americans and, and other countries. Um, you know, you can pick your measure and make your argument. Um, if I want to show you the GDP curves cross this year for China and the Americans, I can show you in some metric, but that's not really the right way to look at it. There are lots of different ways to measure power, but I think most of the ways you measure power shows that the gap is shrinking. Um, there's, you know, the, the National Intelligence Council does these out-year projections, which they publish for all of us to read. You can look at the 2030 version, and if you look out to 2030, 40, 50, you begin to see, you know, sort of the great powers' capabilities measured a lot of different dimensions beginning to, you know, sort of begin to converge as you move out to mid-century. Well, it's going to be very hard to run a hegemonic policy if the gap between you and other powers isn't really significant, if the costs are going to go up. Right? Those inclined to balance against the United States are going to have a lot bigger base upon which to balance. Now, there's something else going on in the diffusion of power, and the Nick talked about this too. Uh, dangerous capabilities seem to have spread to smaller powers and even beyond states to non-state actors. Um, and but here, I'm not talking about weapons of mass destruction. I'm just talking about skill. I mean, the adversary seems to be 
pretty smart, pretty technically adept. Weapons and know-how are now found in surprising places. Um, there is a question here, and uh, you know, I, I can't claim to be the to have the, the the entire bibliography of security studies in my head, but there is a puzzle that needs to be um, addressed. Maybe it has been. I don't think so. Um, the Iraq War cost more in real dollar terms than the Vietnam War did. This is not, you know, current dollars versus old dollars. This is real inflation-adjusted dollars. Now, how can this be true? Right? The, in Vietnam, the, the opposition had open credit card accounts in China and, and Russia in their arsenals. Right? We had to beat the arsenals of a, a, a superpower that our adversaries had access to. Um, Money, advice, whatever. Um, none of this was true in Iraq, yet we spent about the same amount of money. Now, how is that possible? Right? Moreover, although it's very, very hard to measure the amount of money that the Americans spent versus what their adversaries <coughs> spent, I wasted a day or two trying to count dollars just to get some feel for the problem. Uh, Vietnam, on the basis of what I could Fine. Maybe we outspent the other side by a factor of 10 to 1. In Iraq, we may have outspent the other side by 200 to 1. Right? So the cost of these adventures is going up. Now you can say, and I think you'd be right to say, many fewer Americans died in the Iraq War than died in the Vietnam War. True. Um, but many, many Americans are wounded. The ratio of wounded has changed, wounded to dead. And also there's a lot of wounded people that we just didn't count because they didn't have skin punctures. The things that were punctured were from having their brains rattled from too many IEDs, which is really the low-tech, high-tech living example of what the diffusion of power means for you about adversaries getting clever and their ability to impose costs. Right? So the cost of trying to rewire other countries, which is sort of <coughs> central to the liberal hegemony project, is going up and is almost surely destined to get worse. Um, now, to this is added another fact, which another phenomenon, which I think is rather important, which is nationalism and other forms of identity politics. Um, I think that the U.S. presence, active in so many places, has collided with resurgence of identity politics in the world, and sometimes actually helps exacerbate it. I'm not going to claim that my profession, political science, which barely acknowledges my membership anymore. Um, <laughs> really has done a very good job of talking about um, this recent wave of identity politics, or whether it even is a wave or we just noticed it again. I think there's something going on with globalization, marketization, and technology that's increased the salience of identity in the politics of many, many countries, including our own. Um, uh, but when we come to visit some other country to rewire it, we end up colliding with nationalism. And all nationalism doesn't necessarily lead to violence. There's lots of aroused nationalism in the world that doesn't cause violence. But when you go to visit, one thing you can be reasonably sure of, that because of the power of local identities, the locals will tire of you sooner or later. Some will tire of you early. Some will tire of you later. Right? To me, it's striking that the, you know, that the America's allies in Afghanistan clearly be began to tire of us in the last year or so. In Iraq, they surely began to tire of us. It was one of the problems of getting the SOFA agreement that, um, that we tried to negotiate with the Iraqis and didn't get, right? And identity politics, I think, is, is a particularly important problem in this going to visit business because it also interacts with other phenomena. For example, 
world population is still going up. Uh, I think we're at 7 billion. We're expected to hit 9 or 10. 18-year-old um, males are a very important source of military power, and there's lots of them out there. Um, they're under the right conditions, they're prone to violence anyway. So you're bringing people out of the countryside, you're bringing them into cities, they're being mobilized for more intense political activity in the way that Carl Deutsch talked about in his famous book. Um, local political entrepreneurs use identity politics to be able to get support. And if and when we show up, we collide with this. And this creates lots of soldiers, you know, Kalashnikov carriers for our adversaries with, which, with whom we then get to deal. Right? And um, again, it makes the cost high. So we are not very sensitive to identity politics in the United States. We're not even sensitive to our own. And we, we just don't seem to be cognizant of the way that our own action in other countries injects energy into an already extant phenomena, energy that comes back um, to haunt us. So what's the remedy? Um, title tells all. The US should do less than it has been doing. I should focus on a handful of potential problems, but when I say focus on them, I don't mean focus obsessively and offensively on them. Even these problems do not necessarily self-regulate, right? You still need judgment. You still need sensitivity to cause. So what are the problems I think still matter? Well, I am a classicist, so I still do worry a little bit about the emergence of a hegemon in Eurasia that would control all that real estate, all those resources. I think if you had a, a true hegemon in Eurasia, um, it would probably change the way we live in this country in ways that we might not like. Um, and I think it's an experiment you'd rather not run if you can keep from having to run it. Um, and you, you should be willing to spend some money and some military resources to deal with it. Now, there's no candidate for hegemony in Eurasia at the western end of Eurasia. I mean, Russia's got sharp elbows, pain in the neck, but I think if you look at the figures, um, you know, the, the Europeans are well able to deal with, with Russia in terms of any set of resources, population, GDP, whatever. Obviously, there are collective action problems, but I don't think Russia's got very much length in its right hook. I think it can punch hard close to home. Um, where you have problems is in the East. I mean, China is, its economy is growing, its military power is growing. It clearly has a lot of issues that it's trying to work out from its past. Uh, and uh, it, there's, a, you know, there's a risk there that it will be bumptious. And it's going to be a hard country to manage because in contrast to the problem of managing the rise of hegemons in other parts of the world, a big chunk of the growth of China's power is happening internally, some of it from actually its <coughs> interactions with us. So in the fullness of time, if they continue to grow, uh, they're going to be a very tough customer and not a customer that we can deal with in the way we dealt with the Soviet Union. People forget our GDP, even at purchasing power parity, was probably twice the Soviet Union on the Soviet Union's best day. Right? Chinese GDP at purchasing power parity passed ours this year. Right? So to deal with a future China, if you know, many things fall into place for that country's economy, these are all big ifs, to, to contain it, to balance it, to whatever, is going to have to be a collective enterprise. We can't go in and lead the way we led in the past. It's the coalition, whatever happens, and I think it's maybe not even in my lifetime. It doesn't have to happen at all. But if it happens, the coalition's going to look very different from other coalitions where the Americans contributed everything or contributed the, the dominant share and others. You know, it's going to look more like World War II, right? Because that's what it's going to take. Um, and we should be thinking a little bit now about the then, 
right? Um, particularly not about exhausting our capacity through excessive efforts to try and sustain a situation that in fact is eroding in any case. We should be thinking about something else. Second question, uh, nuclear proliferation. Um, I think proliferation probably can happen. If a basket case like North Korea can get an atomic weapon to go off, then I think trying to constrain all the technology and coerce others into not getting nuclear weapons is probably a fool's errand. At the same time, I think it's worth something for proliferation to be slow and managed. So the United States should be willing to spend diplomatic and financial resources to slow it and manage it. Preventive war to me seems like a not sustainable and costly solution for the reasons I talked about a second ago. Um, and our bigger interest, it seems to me, is to keep nuclear weapons in the hands of states who I think can be deterred and out of the hands of groups who I think cannot be deterred. Now, it's hard for groups to get nuclear weapons, right? And you don't have to believe everything about John Mueller's argument and the way he does it to just go through <laughs> the thing in your own mind and say it's pretty hard to get nuclear weapons, but there are situations we can imagine. So, I mean, it seems to me that our interest is helping others who are nuclear weapon states keep their arms around their nuclear weapons. This is the most important thing. There are many things we can do, but there's probably some things we can't do. So there's an ineluctable element of risk associated with the fact that it's a nuclear world. I think we're stuck with that world. Um, we have to do the best we can with it. Then finally, you know, we have been taught a lesson um, for whatever reasons. Maybe it's one of the odd prices of globalization and modernity. Uh, we have learned that nihilistic groups can emerge that can take advantage of sort of the connections that are out there in international politics to attack us in ways that are very hurtful um, if they get the idea in their head that that's a good thing for them to do. Um, and we have to be aware that if it happened once, it can happen again. Um, so the United States and other Western countries have to harden themselves up against this um, threat and also need to engage in a little bit of offense to keep groups of this kind back on their heels worrying about their own survival, spending resources to survive rather than spending resources to attack. This doesn't mean slaying them hip and thigh all over the world. Um, you know, you're bound to end up killing the wrong people. But you have to watch. You have to chase. Every now and then, you have to kill. I think that's part of reality in modern life, part of the world we created. But you've got to be really careful with this. Um, I think you know, without you know, going back to my earlier argument, I think a lower US profile in the world kind of helps with this project because how these people get the idea in their heads that their local problems are going to be solved by attacking us is something I think we need to try and do what we can about. It's not going to be easy, but not leaning into them, I think, is be helpful. Um, regional strategy. I think we should turn most of our alliances into more political and less military. Um, in general, I want to reduce this, you know, significantly the forward stationing of US troops. Uh, do that over, uh, we have to pick some period to do this over. I take 10 years. Um, if, we just sat, if we just started this 15 years ago, we could have done it in 18 months. The world was quieter. Uh, but I think now you have to kind of take a little time to do this. Uh, I think Europe is the place we should really focus on sort of testing this strategy. And I recommend in the book we should, we should support the idea of a European sack here. Shouldn't be America's job anymore. Most American forces should leave Europe. By the way, this. The president going off and putting over to Europe and putting a billion dollars on the table without getting prior commitments from other Europeans about what they were going to do, right? I think it's exactly the wrong way to go, right? This should have been a matching fund. We'll spend a dollar if you'll spend 50 cents, right? But <laughs> there should have been some effort here, right? Um, Persian Gulf, we have to think about what we're really willing to do and not willing to do. Um, I'm, you know, I, I wrestled with the question of just how much commitment the United States should have to the Persian Gulf. I came to the conclusion that it's still worth 
preventing the rise of a single oil hegemon in the Gulf. But I also came to the conclusion that, that intervening in Gulf countries to prevent domestic political change is something that's probably not in our interests when you estimate the plausible cost. And of course, the big casino is Saudi Arabia. Um, nobody ever talks about it, right? And would the Americans intervene to help protect the Saudi regime against rebellion in its own country? Somewhere over there, whichever direction the Pentagon is, these plans exist, but we never discuss it as a country. What exactly are our interests in the Persian Gulf, and what are we committing ourselves to do, and why, right? And I'm not going to say, like, you know, solve the problem. So Asia is the hardest case, right? So I think it's harder to pull out a lot of troops out of Asia, but we should be pulling some. And we should be trying to change the relationships with our allies on the basis of these out-year projections that I was talking about. Um, how am I doing on time? Uh, five, five minutes. Okay, good. All right. Sorry, I missed your... Yeah. Okay. Uh, and finally, just I'll say a word about military strategy and capabilities. Um, some years ago, I wrote an article called Command of the Commons, um, which is basically just cribbing from sea power theory and kind of modernizing it a little bit. Uh, <coughs> given the interests of the United States as I lay them out, in other words, that we want to have the capability to influence events in Eurasia if we wish, we have to protect our access to Eurasia, which means it's a good idea for the United States to focus its efforts, military efforts, on re retaining command of the sea, command of the space, command of the air. Now, these terms, you know, they're very airy terms. Command of the sea is easier to understand. Command of space, there's a question on offensive and defensive weapons. Command of the air, you can't have it everywhere. You're not going to have command of the air over China. You get it out of your head, right? But where you can, I think these are things that you want to do, because you're really trying to protect your access to other places and your ability to bring coalitions together. And the thing you want to give up, basically, is these intervention capabilities, which means in my strategy, when I go looking for money, I kind of loot the Army to a significant extent, the Marine Corps to some extent, um, Air Force to some extent. The Navy does best, but everybody has to shrink. There's just not enough money. Um, and then, of course, we need to maintain an imposing nuclear deterrent. There's questions about what that means. So in closing, um, the way I see it, the U.S. is entering a new period. We'll have greater scarcity of security resources at home. Chris talked about that um, at the outset. Um, parentheses, this is a result of our politics. We, we, this doesn't have to be true. It's our politics that makes it true. But you can't just airily wave your hand and say, well, it's just our politics, right? It's a really powerful set of things that have brought us to this state, and it would take a powerful set of arguments and events to get us away from basically thinking that some of the cuts have to come from the Pentagon. Um, there are more consequential powers abroad, more of them, and they are more consequential because of the growth of their economies. There are more politically mobilized and capable armed groups of every kind out there that you can run into um, when maybe you least expect it. Um, so this all necessitates that the U.S. play a much tighter game. To me, incremental adjustment looks insufficient to address all these problems. We need to set political and military priorities much more rigorously and subsidize the security of others much less generously. So thank you for your attention. Thank you, Barry. Um, all right, well, let me introduce our two commentators. Um, uh, on my left, media left, is Justin Logan. He's the Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. His current research focuses on the shifting balance of power in Asia, specifically with regard to China. Uh, and he also studies the formation of U.S. grand strategy under unipolarity. He's authored a number of policy studies and articles on topics ranging from IR theory, U.S.-China policy, U.S.-Russia policy, uh, stabilization and reconstruction operations, and policy approaches to a nuclear Iran. His writings have appeared in uh, international security, foreign policy, the national interest, among others. He's made the normal round of TV and radio appearances over 
is uh, many years here at Cato, over 10, 11, 11 years at Cato now. Uh, Justin holds a master's degree in international relations from the University of Chicago and a bachelor's degree from American University. And to Justin's right, our second commentator is Blake Hounschel. Blake is deputy editor at Political Magazine, where he oversees the journal's daily web and print operations. Blake was previously managing editor at Foreign Policy, which was nominated for 10 National Magazine Awards during his tenure. In 2011, he was a finalist for the Livingston Awards for Young Journalists for his reporting on the Arab uprisings, and his Twitter feed was named one of Time Magazine's 140 best Twitter feeds of 2011. Under his leadership in 2008, Passport, which is FP's flagship blog, won Media Industry Newsletter's Best of the Web Award. And uh, with Elizabeth Dickinson, he edited Southern Tiger, Chile's Fight for a Democratic and Prosperous Future, which was published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2012. Blake is a graduate of Yale University. So with that, Justin, take it away. Great. Well, thanks a lot for the introduction, Chris. Thanks to Barry for um, writing the book. Thanks to all of you for being here. Um, anybody here who knows anything about me or, or, or my work will strongly suspect that I will say Barry's book is terrific. It is. Uh, his arguments are correct. They are. Uh, but, but agreement is really boring. I'm one of those crotchety people that thinks argument is more interesting. So I'm going to try to focus on three areas of, I wouldn't even call them weaknesses, but areas where I may be able to score uh, some gentlemen's points and to play devil's advocate in some sense. At a, at a broad level of abstraction, these uh, criticisms fall into three categories. There's one sort of overarching policy question or partial disagreement uh, that I'll raise. There, in the second category, are some questions about the international relations of, of this book and some disagreements or, or questions about um, how this fits into the field. And then the third, which is a little bit the, the critic's trick of criticizing a book for not being about something it's not about, um, is to press a little bit, and, and also self-interested, about sort of the theory of victory or, or the theory of change that Barry uh, uh, touches on at the end of the book, but doesn't go into great detail about. Um, but to open just a sort of uh, semantic uh, complaint, I hate restraint. I hate the word restraint. This is, this yeah, is and the cover. See, this this right. is the real cover. It doesn't it's look much, like restraint. Much better. It looks like you know, much unless better. that's the coast of Maine much or somewhere, better. right? Um, I, this is the United States of America. We don't do restraint, right? We invented the atomic bomb and the turducken. You know, I mean, this is a place that, that does things in an unrestrained sort of way. I think if you were, you know, in some sort of, you know, German Catholic parish in the 19th century, restraint, maybe, that, you know, that, that, that sounds appealing. Um, I sort of favor the, the old term about offshore balancing, um, it has a sort of geographic location, an active verb, right? We're not, we're not just sitting on our hands. We're balancing, you know, from offshore. Uh, so I wonder about, um, I know the etymology of the term and where it came from, but I just, the, the idea of restraint sounds to me un-American in 2014. Um, on policy, the first uh, question is about pacing, and I think Barry is very cognizant in the book about sort of the upsides and downsides, respectively, of what, um, he recommends. So talking about how to sort of extricate ourselves from the commitments we've littered across the globe, 
Barry says, quote, for reasons of prudence and practicality, I will argue that there should be a prior stage of much diminished but still significant United States overwatch of key regions, end quote, over the intervening 10 years until we get out. I wonder if that can work. Um, I wonder if the elaborate theories we've tricked ourselves into believing uh, will be exerted on us during that uh, uh, diminished but significant overwatch period. I think he's correct that prudence and practicality argue for uh, moderate timing in doing this. But I wonder whether there isn't an at least equally persuasive argument that this period of being kind of pregnant um, will in fact fail to get us out. And I wonder whether it's not going to pull us back in uh, uh, like selective engagement, I think to use a phrase I think I heard from you, had a lot of criteria for engagement and not that many for selection. <laughs> um, so I worry that, that, that maybe shock therapy with all of the perils inherent in it, uh, or to use a different metaphor, just ripping the Band-Aid off, uh, may be the only way to actually get to restraint, right? If we have this sort of part in, part out, I wonder whether the, we won't uh, once again entrance ourselves with our theories about how uh, dominoes wind up falling on our own shores. A second question um, that I hesitate to, to ask for fear that I'll be destroyed with the response is, what's realist about this, right? I think I can make a, a very strong case that it's conservative or prudent or efficient but what's the case that it's realist, right? What's the case that anything's realist in a unipolar world? You know, the, the, the canon of realism uh, really didn't contain anything about unipolarity. To my mind, realism is about responses to the pressures of the international system. And what sorts of pressures in the international system the United States faces in 2014 uh, really buffet us this way or that? Isn't the world sort of really our oyster? And this is a story about uh, the various idiosyncrasies of American strategic thought uh, and pushing back against them more than it is uh, per se a realist story. And in keeping with that, one criticism that I've gotten making similar arguments um, to this is that it's too pat to say this all, we sort of uh, burst out of the gate at the end of the Cold War. Um, isn't that sort of a false disjuncture? Weren't we up to wild and crazy ideas well before the end of the Cold War? I think it's very good and refreshing, Barry points out, you know, even in its heyday, the USSR was militarily pretty scary, uh, but not really necessarily a peer. Uh, you know, we tend to look back and to, to overstate, really, uh, the nature of the Soviet Union, the military threat posed by the Soviet Union. And I think the story of Vietnam fits at least as well into Barry's story about the present as it does into Barry's story about the Cold War. I, to my mind, Vietnam was about a mostly unconstrained great power getting caught up in its own bad ideas, in part as a consequence of the lack of external constraints that caused it to think more hard uh, about its own theories. So I wonder whether we haven't been this sort of wild and crazy country for a longer time. Um, than just the last 25 years. And finally, on the theory of victory, which is, again, um, I, I raise self-interested as somebody who tries to move the ball on these questions um, for a career. On page 118, on a, in a section on Israel-Palestine, you write, quote, 
I have no expectation that the United States will move beyond its present policies, but perhaps it can and should distance itself from regional feuds. I think that's sort of a thesis statement for the book. I think you could take that and extrapolate it uh, across the book. Um, but it seems to me that it raises the question, right? When should we have expectations that the United States will move beyond its present policies or indeed beyond its current grand strategy? Um, and it seems to me that there are two ways that we could adopt restraint. And you get to this you know, in closing the book. We could be forced to look for restraint. Uh, and so you know, uh, th there could be these massive structural changes in international politics. There could be the financial collapse where policymakers are casting around and see a book on the shelf called Restraint and say, oh, get this guy posing down here. We'll figure out what he's up to. Not a chance. Um, not a chance. <laughs> not, not even under those circumstances. Right, right. Um, or, or we could choose to adopt Restraint, right? Um, people could say, you know, that posing really moved the ball, and I had never heard an argument like this. And uh, uh, maybe it would be better if we got some of these uh, international welfare types off the dole and, you know, left Europe to the Europeans, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so at times, I think you've you used rhetoric that at least made me wonder whether you think will be slowly sort of cumulatively uh, forced, at least to move in the direction of restraint, if not to adopt the strategy wholesale. Um, I, it's very difficult for me to see that. And I would like to see it for professional, personal, and intellectual reasons. Um, so if you think that we are being cumulatively pushed in this direction in uh, the policy-relevant future, I would want to hear a little bit more about why and how you think that. Um, I think the strategy is probably affordable and probably sustainable into the policy-relevant future. I view that as a problem. Um, and so one thing that I think it's important to disentangle is talk to people like Woolforth or Eikenberry, and they'll say, look, 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 you're focused on all this Iraq, right? It's always 2004 for you. The core commitments of liberal hegemony or whatever they call it, really cool internationalism or what have you, they're D not deep, deep, engagement. Deep, deep engagement. Deep engagement. Right, right. Deeply unselective engagement. I'm, I'm a shallow engager. Um, <laughs> that the, the core commitments uh, really are sustainable. So, so do you buy that, right? Do you think this is sustainable but just dumb like I do? Uh, or do you think it's not sustainable? And if, if it's left to choice, right, to, to the old ideas matter, uh, let's have a, a round table and I'll convince you that mine are correct, um, I want to hear a little bit more about that, right? Foreign policy in the United States is an elite sport. Uh, very, very few elections have anything whatsoever to do with foreign policy, uh, even at the presidential level. And so I think there's not really a story where we just bang out a fusillade of op-eds uh, and create this sort of bottom-up revolution where the only politicians who get elected are team restraint, um, and then they sort of staff their offices on the Hill and the State Department and the Pentagon with team restraint, and then we get restraint. Um, so you're really left, I think, and, and, and I may be wrong about this, with elites, right? We're trying to persuade elites that this is the, the, the correct way to go. Um, in an earlier call for a fairly similar change in U.S. grand strategy, uh, the author remarked, quote, unless it undergoes a Damascene-like intellectual conversion, as long as the present foreign policy elite remains in power, the United States will remain wedded to a hegemonic grand strategy. It will probably take a major domestic political realignment, perhaps triggered by setbacks abroad or a severe economic crisis at home, to bring about change in American grand strategy. Does that seem right to you or wrong to you? 
Um, because I, I have inclinations, but I'd, I'd like them to be smashed. Um, <laughs> we're going into our fourth generation of American foreign policy elites who have been powerfully socialized around NATO, around the idea of American leadership always and everywhere, around what you talk about a little bit in the book, this implicit dumb version of hegemonic stability theory. It's a just-so story that takes three sentences to bang out before you can get out of the first paragraph of your article. Um, and a sort of evangelical, messianic version of American nationalism. Do we have to persuade those people uh, that this is correct? Um, or, again, do you go from the politician down, right? When, when, when Rand Paul wins the presidency, right? Is he going to bring in a bunch of team restraint people to get this going? I don't even know who those people would be. Right? Um, you know, the old aphorism about personnel being policy. Um, say what you will about Jim Baker or Brent Scowcroft, they could talk to this book. They, th you know, they, they, they spoke this language. And the more I talk to people around town, they don't speak this language. They speak a different language. They speak the language of, you know, policy schools and stuff. And so we've created this parallel system of think tanks and policy schools to keep the people who are going to run American foreign policy away from dangerous people like you, who are off toiling in the, in the academy uh, working on these ideas. So do we have to blow up the think tanks and the policy schools to get this thing going? Um, so I'm just left with this idea that um, you know, ideas matter, but in weird ways. And I know that, again, this wasn't what your book was about, and I'm criticizing it for not being about something it was about. But I, I know a little bit about you, and I know a little bit about somebody who would write a book like this, and you must think about these things. Uh, so I wonder what your thoughts are. But again, I think for people who want a succinct, well-written, uh, pleasurable book to read that really, I think, both does violence to liberal hegemony and is very fair-minded in posing criticisms of itself, uh, I really highly recommend Restraint. Thanks a lot. <clears throat> Okay, I guess I'm, I'm supposed to be the critic, uh, but I actually found myself uh, really, uh, you know, enjoying this book and being persuaded by much of it. And what I, what I really liked about uh, Barry's book was that it, it really did engage with and anticipate potential criticism. Um, so he's done a lot of the work, uh, you know, for potential critics uh, like me. Um, having said that, I, I find myself with a lot of questions about sort of how you would move the United States to a strategy of restraint. I think the political system is a lot messier in reality, and I'm sure Barry would admit this, than when you sketch it out uh, in a book of IR theory. Um, and the way things happen is, is, is in the case of you know, sequ defense sequestration is not the way anyone would have, would have wanted it to, to happen uh, in a book of strategy. Um, and then I look at things like uh, recent events that are going on in the world, um, like what's happening in Iraq right now, where uh, ISIS, this uh, offshoot of al-Qaeda that uh, evolved out of uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq and gained a lot of strength in Syria, now coming back into Iraq and taking over uh, entire cities uh, oil facilities, they, I think they took something like $425 million uh, in Mosul when they captured 
uh, Mosul, one of the largest cities in Iraq, uh, the other day. Um, so that kind of thing uh, alarms me. And, and I think um, where Barry's book I would like to have seen more is engaging on the very real threat that these kinds of groups pose to the United States, but also um, to allies where the United States has made commitments uh, and to, to people. Um, U.S. foreign policy has never been about um, strictly interests. It's, it's always been some weird blend of values and interests. And I think when Americans see 500,000 people streaming out of a, a city in Iraq, when they see casualty figures like 160,000 or so Syrians being killed over the last few years, it, um, it makes them wonder, what, what can we do about this? And uh, you know, maybe Barry would say it's not our, our battle, or uh, we can only affect things at the margins. But um, you know, this, th our foreign policy is one that comes out of the democratic process. And it's, it's the product of um, what Americans think their, their role in the world should be, not just what they think would be abstractly good for their interests. Um, and then I look at a situation like Ukraine, um, where you know, I, could, I could make a very plausible argument that you know, Vladimir Putin stepped in it uh, by taking over Crimea uh, and infiltrating eastern Ukraine. The Russian economy is in the dumps. Foreign direct investment is dying, um, drying up. Uh, capital is fleeing the country. Um, it hasn't necessarily been a great success for Vladimir Putin, but I don't think it's something that has been a success for US foreign policy either. Um, I think about you know, arguments that Barry and his sort of side of things make about NATO and how uh, the mission creep of NATO in the 90s and the 2000s antagonized Russia. And uh, I, I think, well, it's a good thing we have NATO and we have NATO enlargement so that you have countries around the Russian rim uh, that feel a little bit more secure when Russia does things like invade Georgia and Ukraine. Um, I, I read arguments like Barry makes about wanting to encourage um, U.S. allies like Japan to do more for their own security. Uh, and I worry that um, that might not necessarily be, have that kind of outcome that we want. Um, there's a long history in Asia of Japanese um, expansionism. There's a lot of hurt feelings. Uh, we, the United States has had a lot of trouble uh, getting its own allies like Korea and Japan uh, on the same page and working together in a, in a kind of strategy to, to uh, present a united front to China. And um, the kinds of things that Shinzo Abe is talking about doing in Japan right now, um, I could imagine backfiring badly. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily the case that the US stepping back, allowing its allies to bear more of the burden, is going to lead to the kinds of outcomes that we want. Um, in the case of Europe, um, and, and Barry does get into this, um, it could be years, if ever, before the Europeans step up and do more for their own security. I mean, how many times have we heard a US Secretary of Defense, a US President, go across to Europe and say, you know, you guys promised to spend X percent of your GDP on defense and you're not doing it. Please, please spend more on defense. <laughs> now, Barry would probably argue that's because, you know, we're playing the role of Uncle Sucker 
And if we, <laughs> if we withdraw our, some of our security umbrella from those places, then they'll have to step up. But, but maybe there will be a lot of suffering and problems that happen in that transition period before they realize that they have a crisis on their hands. Um, <coughs> and so, you know, I, I also worry about where the U.S. is now in this kind of political gray zone um, when it comes to foreign policy. We've all uh, gotten the sense that this is the moment for people like uh, Rand Paul, who are arguing for pretty much uh, maybe not in, in the same level of detail or in the same amount of erudition for a policy of restraint. Um, nobody likes the I word around here, I know, so I won't use that word. Maybe internationalism? We like that word. <laughs> Isolationism. Um, and uh, just as an aside, I think Rand Paul could probably use some staff help. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> you know. Um, I think he would talk to <laughs> well, you know, the interesting thing about Rand Paul is that he's really kind of walked back a lot of the things he said a few years ago. And uh, I remember this piece he wrote about Ukraine that had me scratching my head, which was about, uh, you know, how there's going to be this Ukrainian terrorist movement that arises to uh, blow up gas pipelines and how that was going to um, backfire on Russia. Uh, anyway, he's he's sort of um, all over the map right now, and and you know it would be I think very useful if we had a Rand Paul versus Hillary Clinton uh, 2016 matchup that had a clear bright line on on national security, but I I'm skeptical that we'll either get Rand Paul or a, a clear debate. Um, but um, I just I just want to leave everyone here with the with the thought that. Um, Barry makes in the, in the final uh, chapter of his book where he says, you know, very self-effacingly that it's not very likely that politicians are going to read these arguments, have a eureka moment, and decide to transform our grand strategy. <laughs> There's little to suggest that this moment is imminent. Um, I thought that was admirable <laughs> uh, self-awareness and, uh, you know, I applaud him for nonetheless taking seven years to, to put together <laughs> an argument that um, is going to be a challenge to, to put into the put into the public sphere. So uh, I'll, I'll leave you with that. Thank you, Blake. <clears throat> All right. Thank you both. Um, before we turn, turn to questions, I'll give uh, Barry an opportunity to respond to, to some or uh, of what either Justin or uh, Blake said or, or something else that's occurred to you in the meantime. I, I can, and it's hard to avoid the temptation to well, discuss it, but at the same time, you do want to get people in. So we do. Well, I'll start talking for a few minutes, and then just stop me. All right, all right. When, all right. Can I do it from here? Is, you is get, this, yeah, yes. yeah, is this fine, mic live? Yeah, the mic's on. Okay, good. Um, so let's just... Um, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, Justin. Um, so... He didn't like the name restraint. I don't either. Racked my brain. Couldn't come up with a better one. Uh, don't really like offshore balancing either. I don't think most Americans don't really get it. Uh, but I think you can tell from the ships I put on the uh, on the uh, cover that offshore has a lot to do with it. Um, so I was much better. Yeah, I was trying. I was trying to send that message, and I did not get product placement 
money from the Navy. <laughs> but I kicked myself afterwards for not doing it. Uh, uh, I, I think his pacing questions are, are, uh, are very good ones. And um, uh, I made an argument based upon a kind of a reading of history and my own intuitions. Uh, I think particularly at this time, it would be hard to make an argument that going binary on this would be the right way to go. But you can imagine that there are circumstances which would produce that kind of change. In other words, you know, had, uh, I guess I admire Ben Bernanke and the other central bankers. Um, they understood something when this last crisis happened that people did not understand in 1931. And it made, it made a huge difference, but you know, had they guessed wrong and we'd have had something that looked like post 1931, I'm not sure how much of this project we could have still sustained. And I think we probably would have been changing things pretty quick. Um, my, what I would actually say to Justin is to say, okay, I tried to explore one way of running a change. I'd say, hey, welcome to the club. How other people should think, well, what, what does a binary change look like? If you, if you can imagine sort of two or three different sets of causes of change, one being incremental accrual of causes, which is what I think I, I think is the most likely, versus a kind of a, a snap change, then there were probably two patterns of adaptation that are plausible, one being incremental, like I talk about, and the other being a snap one. And the question is, how snappy could you conceivably be, and how would you imagine that snappiness would go? So I, I think it's a, it's a great question, and, you know, bring it on. I mean, I, I sort of say at the end of the... Of the, of the book, you know, I mean, to get this book out, I had to resist the temptation of dealing with every question and every permutation. So I picked the line of advance to try and get it out there. Uh, what's realist about this? Well, free riding, reckless driving is realist. Balancing is realist. Um, the real question is, and, and trying to assess where the constellation of power in the world is going is realist. Now, I could be wrong about where the constellation of power is going on. I'm essentially saying unipolarity we'll be waving at a fond farewell over the next 20 years. The, the people who see the world as unipolarity, friends of mine, they say, what are you talking about? Now, I find them unusually creative at finding new metrics, <laughs> right? Because the old ones don't work anymore, right? Um, we pay the Nick a lot of money. They talk to everybody in the world. Everyone knows how they do these drills. The answer they came to is the answer they came to. Now, you know, if all I can get out of $70 billion of intelligence investment every year is that one page with the graphs that project into 2050 and show you a different world, then, okay, I'll take that, bank it, and use it in my book. Now, they could be wrong, right? The $70 billion could have been misspent, which probably some of it was. Um, were we crazy during the Cold War? Yes. Um, this gets to your earlier argument, earlier argument about restraint. You know, restraint is not the American way. Um, here's, a, here's a topic for someone to do a comparative it's selection on the dependent variable, so that's evil. Do it anyway. Um, <laughs> the Americans have three entirely avoidable and totally disastrous wars since World War II ended. We had a war with China, which we submerged in the Korean War, so we don't have to think about the blunders that produced that war. The war in Vietnam and the war in Iraq, right? All of them elective, right? All right so how did we do that? What's common across those things, right? And so I, I agree with you. There's, there's, there's a kind of long wave of craziness in our foreign policy that we should be thinking through too. And it's one of the things that concerns me, right? And I talk about in the book, one of the things I didn't talk about in the talk, but you know, it's kind of hard to talk about is, um, you know, I spend a lot of my time studying military power. 
and I've developed a strange respect for it the way I have for a loaded handgun, right? I don't own guns, right? But I used to own guns. And when I'm around somebody who has a loaded handgun or I see a loaded handgun or I see a handgun where it shouldn't be and I pick it up, I look to see if it's loaded. I'm really very, very careful with it, right? Well, Americans don't treat war like a loaded handgun, which is they all would if they found one because most of them don't know anything about it, right? We treat it, it's a scalpel, it's a stiletto, it's a laser beam, right? Well, it's not, right? And there's something about the way we end up thinking about military power that's just bizarre. Given that if you look at the Russell Wagley's American way of war, the way we always win is sledgehammer. It's always a sledgehammer. So we have these rapier arguments to get it started. And then once you've got your credibility engaged, then it's sledgehammer to finish it, right? So that's Campbell's nose stuff, but we always fall for it, right? We should stop falling for it, right? All right, um, two more minutes. Take, oh. Go after Blake for a minute, because okay. he's dodged the bullet so far. Uh, okay, let me, let me see. Where is he now? Um, I gotta, where did my Blake... Um, oh, hell. I think I've got to hold. Let me see. Right. Maybe I should hold. Wait, wait a second. Okay, wait, wait, just give me a second here. I got yeah, right to re refocus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Got to refocus. Yeah. Um, uh, okay. Here's what I would say about Ukraine or ISIS, right? Rather than get into another exegesis about these, and, and I wrote a little restraint story about Ukraine, and I can write you a little restraint story about ISIS and Iraq if you want. Here's what I would say, right? When these things arise, people should take the basic heuristics I used here and then ask themselves, when you look at these problems through those heuristics, what questions does it raise? What facts does it limb? What answers does it suggest, right? Now, I oppose the Iraq war. I spent $1,000 to pay for a New York Times ad to help pose it. I don't think anyone who signed that ad ever got a job in the Obama administration, just to be honest. Um, in the summer of 03, when things went to hell, I said, you know, all of a sudden international organizations are nosing around saying they could help in Iraq, and we're stiff-arming them. I, I said, no. Give it to them as quickly as you can. Say thank you. <laughs> right? In the middle of the war, before the surge, I said, you know, there's really only one thing to do here, which is partition this place. It can be soft partition, hard partition. Why? Because I believe in identity politics. Why? Because I believe re-engineering the politics of this country is going to be hard, right? Now, at any given time in the process, had anybody paid any attention to me at all, we'd be better off than we are today, right? And it's because I have ideas about balancing. I have ideas about the difficulty of using force. I have ideas about nationalism, which you hear in this book, which I believe should affect the way we think about things. Right? So if people are thinking now, ooh, dear, what are we going to do? I heard some halfwit on CNN this morning, I will, who will go unnamed, to basically just repeating the kind of 2008 cant about how we're going to build security forces ca capacity. But meanwhile, because we don't have enough time to do that, we have to do something energetic to stop the onward march of ISIS, whom we're sure is the villain here, ISIS. Right? Um, well, we're not going to build partner capacity in a, in, in, a, in a country where we pretend to be building a multinational, multi-ethnic army in a country that's an ethnic hegemony, a state that we created as an ethnic hegemony, right? This country is on the way to partition. Don't try and stop it. Get ahead of it. All right. Thank you, Barry. Um, okay. So we have rules here at the Cato Institute, uh, contrary to popular belief. Um, and uh, they, they go like this. Wait for the microphone. That's for the benefit of those who are watching online. 
uh, identify yourself and your affiliation if you have one. And uh, the Jeopardy rule applies here at the Cato Institute, which means uh, frame your question in the form of a question. Uh, and with that, uh, right here, Brian McGrath, take it away. Thank you. Uh, Professor Posen, my name is Brian McGrath from the Hudson Center for American Sea Power. When I come to Cato, I feel like Charlie Brown approaching the football because often there's a promise that the Navy is really going to be featured in these <laughs> wonderful libertarian-oriented uh, approaches to foreign policy. Uh, and you have ships on your book, which made me very happy. Um, <laughs> Then I heard you just the last few words of your, of your presentation say, but of course all the services are going to get smaller. So my question to you is, um, in this strategy, does the current Navy, it's, uh, the size of the current Navy, is it sufficient to take on the responsibilities that you would assign it in this strategy? Uh, well, I try to argue that a slightly shrunken Navy, at least in terms of surface forces, can do it. I don't really... I don't really disagree with the, the, the Navy's out your plans for the SSN force. I, I sort of believe that the SSN force is the actual capital ship of our day. Um, but when you talk about current strategy, right, again, I don't believe in current strategy. I have a different strategy, right? And second, even if I did believe in current strategy in the sense of politically what it is we want to do, I wouldn't believe in what we're trying to do operationally, right? So there's many levels at which we can discuss this thing, right? But um, uh, I, I actually have an argument about the overall force structure. I have an argument about naval strategy. I have a way of sizing the forces. And you can look at it and decide whether you like it or not. I think at, le at least you should like the fact that I actually spent 20, 25 pages on the problem and tried to think it through. And, and I put ships on the cover. So that's pretty much, you know, I, I mean, if you want me to say more about what the force structure looks like, it's 40 or 45 SSNs, right? It's... Uh, I shrink the Marine Corps, so I shrink the Amphib Force a little bit. I shrink the Carrier Force, but not by much. I go down to about nine. I'm still a little bit, I feel a little bit funny about the Carrier Force because I think the Navy, for very good reasons, isn't very honest about how vulnerable carriers actually are or not, and therefore what you can and cannot use them for. So there's limits to what you can do, and I wasn't going to write a whole book about the Navy. So I took certain things as givens, and I worked within certain parameters, and I came up with a a force structure that suits my strategy. It might not suit the present strategy, right? I mean, I, I don't think we will, we will be able to shuttle bomb China, right? I, I just don't think it's ever it's going to happen. I don't think we're going to be able to run surface operations up within a couple hundred nautical miles of the Chinese coast. I think that's gone. Those days are gone, right? Um, I do think that with if our allies spent a little bit more on defense and bought the right things, we can accomplish what I believe would be our minimum operational objectives under my strategy, and I think probably would work under this strategy, which is be able to keep the Chinese penned in if we want to, and deny them access to, to, to sea lanes of communication for imports. I think we could do this with the present Navy, we could do it with a smaller Navy, and I think we should maintain the capability to do that. But things that we say we want to do, we hint we want to do, I think there are things we can't do with the current Navy or the current Air Force, it's going to get harder and harder, and I think the effort to do it is actually incredibly dangerous, right? And I talk about that in my Inadvertent Escalation book, which I footnote in this book, right? My, my much unread book on Inadvertent Escalation, which is having a second life, right, because of the China problem. So I think if you, if you get into it, I think you may not agree, but I think you'll be happy that there was an effort made, right? Uh, 
Uh, right here. Oh, lots of questions. All right. You, you, which means your answers need to be shorter. Uh, right here. Stop uh, me before I kill again. Yeah, go ahead, Jeremy. And then I'll get, to, I'll get you back there. And No, you don't get to ask a question. All thanks. right. Go ahead. Go ahead, Jeremy. Uh, Jeremy Shapiro from Brookings. And uh, uh, thanks for that. That inadvertent escalation book is certainly the best book that I've never read. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it seems to me that people who have problems with this argument, uh, the restraint argument, uh, have two um, assumptions in mind that I'd like to hear your thoughts on, because uh, although Blake alluded to them, you didn't really get to them in your, um, in your talk. The first is that the United States has a tremendous stake in the world order as it exists now, and this is well beyond trade. This is about the fact that we have all sorts of, inter all sorts of stakes in the international system, from trade flows to financial flows to resource flows, uh, that, in fact, our economy and our livelihood and our way of life is, are essentially uh, based on. The second is that that world order is fragile and, the reason, and, and largely supported by American power. And the reason that it's fragile and supported by American power is that there's a sort of fundamental collective action problem in the international system. Uh, and that if we don't provide it, the argument that people will step in and step up is... Uh, contradicted by the history of the thing. And this is, of course, generally a reference to the pre-World War I, pre-World War II period that I know you've studied a lot, uh, where when America was absent, uh, and you, you could have done the analysis that you did about Russia uh, today with Germany in the 1920s and 1930s, the Europeans had plenty of power, plenty of latent capability to stop that problem without the United States, but they didn't. Uh, and the United States had to step in. So I'd like to get your reactions to those sort of two assumptions. All right. The question part of that, that last part was the Yeah, my, part. Re my reactions. Uh, yes. <clears throat> right. Um, well, I don't think the world order is very fragile, right? And at least the, the world security order. And the reason I don't think it's fragile is I think most power centers are nuclear weapon states, and those who aren't can become nuclear weapon states. So the idea that any one great power can knock over another one, right? And add to its own power is pretty remote, right? In fact, I think it's impossible. Now, you could say that um, we have an interest in there not being any nuclear wars anywhere. And I would say, yes, we do have an interest in there not being any nuclear wars anywhere. But the way we tend to pursue that interest, right, is by doing things with our own nuclear forces that are quite dangerous to us cause us to assume risk of nuclear attack on the United States in order to prevent nuclear wars among others, right? And to me, it, it, the game is not worth the candle. And that's because of my understanding of the way we do military business, which I talk a little bit about in the book. Um, other aspects of fragility. Um, everyone, likes to, everyone likes to talk about the 1930s, and it was a bad time, right? I, I'm not going to deny it, right? But no one talks about the 100 years peace. Right? We had a long multipolar world. It was punctuated by some limited, real wars, limited wars in the middle of it. But great powers had a long period. That's how the liberal international system happened. And when people say, well, there was a hegemon, yeah, there was, but it wasn't the kind of hegemony that we've done. Britain was an offshore hegemon. Britain was often quite, very quiet on the continent. Britain concentrated on command of the sea, right? And that, that turned out to be kind of enough, right, to help guarantee international trade. So 
from my point of view, given the strategy that I, you know, I pursue, right, from a security point of view, given that I'm interested in command of the sea, we're going to end up providing that same service to the international trade system anyway. Um, finance, uh, people talk about the role of the dollar. It's a very magical question, right? But uh, I don't think there's any, well, I shouldn't say there's any, because again, I haven't read everything, but I think there's good evidence that the dollar became a reserve currency in the 1920s. Right? It, 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 you know, the trade may follow the flag, but the dollar didn't. The dollar is a world reserve currency because of certain properties that we have in this economy, properties that will be, if anything, probably accentuated with the strategy that I talk about rather than diminish. So if you want a, a really strong dollar that you can use whenever you want, my strategy is actually more likely to guarantee it than others. So my point is, is that these, these, the, the argument from fragility is an argument that I actually, I, I, I punch up against, in, I, I do punch against in the book. Um, and the argument that only with a single global hegemon will enough work get done so that the, you know, we and other countries can go about their business. I, I think there's other evidence, right? This, this is the, this is the um, canonization of hegemonic stability theory, a canonization which actually, as I understand it, is not present in the theoretical community in which it was born. This theory has been challenged. And in fact, it's not really much used anymore because it's a very hard theory to, to prove. And there are other deductive theories that suggest three, four, five great powers can manage many things. So the point is, yes, you are right, right? The, the counter, the, the implicit counter argument, the defensive position, the underlying, you know, sort of um, assumption is the whole world goes to hell in a handbasket unless the United States is out there managing things. And the corollary is we make an occasional little mistake, but A, we're smart enough to stop making those mistakes, and B, they're little, right? Now, if you think these, the, the one elective war that we've had in, in this period and the two that we had in the last period are small, that's fine. If you think that we're smart enough, given the kind of expansive strategy that we have, that we're going to avoid these things, more power to you, right? I don't think so. Uh, sir, back there, you've been very patient, right there, the blue shirt. Yeah, thank you. I'd like to thank everybody. The only problem I have is I keep feeling like I'm at the CFR and not at Cato, uh, particularly when you start talking about my favorite senator, Rand Paul. And, you know, I wonder if Rand Paul and Barack Obama don't have something in common, which you guys have totally missed. And that is the fact that both of them recognize that the real issue for libertarianism and for human beings is people and that it's Gdansk, the civil rights movement in this country, Egypt, Libya, Tiananmen Square, those are the dynamics of foreign policy and not this think tank mentality that sent people like me to Vietnam to kill exotic people. And uh, I would applaud uh, Rand Paul and Barack Obama because I believe they do have a theory of libertarianism somewhere deep in them. And um, I think you guys are been in Washington too long, and I don't know if any of you were in Vietnam, but I tend to doubt it. Well, uh, did you have a question, sir? Yeah. Respond, go, go. respond to that. Oh, oh that was, so that was his question. Re respond to that. Respond to that. Is this, the, is this the CFR, Barry? Is this just another CFR discussion? Well, I gave this talk at CFR the other day. And oh, oh, they didn't. Go. They didn't run me out of town on a rail. They didn't run me town on a rail, so maybe the gentleman's right. I mean, <laughs> what I would say, this, I think this, on this side issue is, um, you know, th this whole question of what would 
you know, get the country to, you know, wh why make an argument like this, right? And the, the wh one reason to make it is so that here and at the CFR and everywhere else, the argument needs to be discussed when the other argument is discussed, right? Right? You can't, I mean, the old, you can't beat something with nothing adage governs. Right. And um, I think about, you know, as, I, as I mentioned when I was talking, in my impassioned speech about Iraq, Blake, uh, uh, this is a way of looking at things, right? So I would consider it to be a, a, a great victory if when we had these discussions, someone who had read this book just sort of said in the discussion, even if it's a discussion I'm not privy to, you know, we could think about this another way, even if they were shouted down, right? right? Even if people didn't want to think about it another way, they said, well, we could think about this another way, right? And make sure to the extent that we can, that there's always at least one other way to think about every one of our projects, right? Because one of the things that got me to do this was there isn't much disagreement in, in you know, public discord, right? And the public itself is kind of, they're, they're the audience for this thing with a kind of half an ear, half an eye, not paying much attention. And so if you have a chorus where Everything matters. This is a problem. That is a problem, right? What, what else are they going to think, right? There's got to be some other chorus, even if it's a tiny little one, you know? Um, right. And I, I'm not exactly sure I understood what, what um, the, the point, you know, the issue is people, right? But um, my argument about identity politics is that... Um, the United States too often thinks that the countries it goes to visit are full of um, American ex-urban citizens desperate to be born, right? And I, I think that in the fullness of time, maybe everyone would want to be an American ex-urban citizen, right? But given where they are now and where they've been, their 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 first sets of think, thoughts about politics whenever there's trouble is is where is my source of protection? You know what takes care of me, right? And that often turns out to be in some order: family, clan, ethne, nation, religious, right? And these identities get spun up pretty fast in these situations. And, and, and we, I think the Americans in particular, but I'm starting to think the Russians have the problem too. Uh, we're, not, we're not very sensitive to, to these local political identities, which are um, uh, contained within a, a lot of political energy, a lot of ability to mobilize political and military power, right, resistance. Right. So when, if, if that's what you mean by thinking about people or peoples, then I, I think maybe we're a little bit on the same wavelength. Okay, questions. Right there in the middle, she's going to promise to ask, ask a question. We have about time for, I, I see three hands, so I have time for three questions quickly, you and then you. Okay, so right in the middle. Thank you, sir. Hi, my name's Rachel. I'm also a Yale University undergraduate in our grand strategy program. And my question is, our program teaches us that a grand strategy involves multiple spheres of policy, not just the military, not just the economy, everything from, you know, 
education, employment, labor. So my question to you is, your focus is on mostly the military and the economy. What are the implications for a restraint strategy on our involvement in international organizations, and particularly our involvement in humanitarian efforts abroad? You're going to take them all, right? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, yeah let's get. Yeah, good, good call. Yeah, so, sir, you had a, you had your hand up right there. Go ahead, and then I'll get you, sir. Yeah, go ahead quickly. Question. Sure, I, I can actually piggyback. Uh, Jared Tolan, I'm a professor at Virginia Tech, I can piggyback on that. Um, the does the United States have an interest in uh, preventing genocide worldwide? Uh, is that not a systemic interest? Does the United States not have a particular? Uh, vested interest in that. I think part of the issue has to do with what we see on our televisions. We're dealing in a world of time-space compression. The particular critique that could be made of your argument is that it relies on a kind of a, a very primordialist conception of the rest of the world and it, it relies on a kind of a mythic uh, idea of hemispheralism that we can kind of somehow withdraw from the particular um, nature of the uh, kind of horrors that, that surround us in the world. Okay, and you, sir. Go ahead. Good afternoon. My name is Bruce Elk, and I work at the Organization of American States. My question is, uh, when is the threshold that we have a good war that we can fight since the last three were not? Good question. All right, so there's three questions, Barry. Take it away. Uh, well, I'm not sure. There actually, those were two. Those I, did go together. Those yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna actually go backwards. Yeah. Um, okay. uh, so the threshold of a, a good war, I don't. I, I always hesitate to use the term good war, right? Um, yeah, I, I never had to go to war. Um, wars kept missing me, but I've made it my business to study them for a long time, and even the best of them don't look that, don't look that great. Um, what I would say is we need to revisit the idea of limited war, and when I say revisit the idea of limited war, I mean the idea of limited aims, right? I think one of the problems we've had is that even in wars with which I did not agree, there were moments where you might have been able to walk away from the table with a, a little, a few winnings at moderate cost, right? And we don't seem to know how to do it. In other words, as I told you, I opposed the Iraq war, but in 2003, by the end of the summer, I'd say the administration at least had settled what it claimed its purposes had been, which was to figure out whether there were weapons of mass destruction. Now, I don't believe those were really their purposes, but those were the purposes they had committed to publicly. And basically, Iraq had a clean bill of health. And this is why I say, gee, how do we get out of here as quickly as possible? Well, it's very hard to do because the pottery barn rule, blah, 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 blah. The UN was nosing around. We want to be here. Great, right? Um, you could even make an argument in Vietnam there was a moment, you know, because the, 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 the spring offensive in what was it, 64, 65, we stopped it with a couple of divisions. And that was the point to negotiate, not escalate, right? So we should be thinking about limited aims. I mean, the first Gulf War looks really nice in some sense because we had limited aims and we kept to them. Now, the Bush, the elder, was pilloried for that. In retrospect, it looks brilliant. I thought it was brilliant at the time. Even drunk, I thought it was brilliant because I remember, I remember being asked at the time. I said, "This is brilliant." Right. Um, when I do some of my best work, um, 
genocide, humanitarian intervention. Okay. One can level a criticism at this book that it has a rather narrow focus on national security defined in a traditional sense. Now, I happen to believe that that's, A, the main thing we need to be concerned about. I happen to believe that almost all arguments that are made for other activities typically are couched in national security terms rather than values terms, right, to get the minimum winning coalition <coughs> to do it, right? And third, just on intellectual grounds, I think we need a simple, linear, basic, narrow approach first that has a coherence, and then you can think about what else you want to do and what it costs to do it. Now, I don't really take up, you know, I, I take this question up a little bit in, in the book, right? Um, I don't believe that even if a president of the United States were to adopt this strategy and something horrible was to happen somewhere in the world, that the American people could, on the basis of my advice, be inoculated against the humanitarian impulse. All I would like to see done is to have that separated from this. Those arguments should be made on their own terms. So you use the word genocide, right? That, the word genocide is a very interesting word. There's a whole legal infrastructure around it, right? It's used way more often, I think, than it can meet the legal definition. And second, dedicated lawyers have done what they could to expand the definition in the post-Cold War period in order to maximize the hexing power and domestic politics of the term. Now, I think a true genocide is a horrible thing. And if at moderate cost, the United States can do something about it, you're not going to get me saying no, and I can imagine circumstances to which I would say yes, right? I mean, I, I can certainly imagine that. But I also think people need, in some sense, to be honest about what they're arguing, right? Um, do you want to stop a genocide? Or do you want to rebuild a country? Because often these two, these two arguments go together. It's much actually easier to stop a genocide than it is to rebuild the politics of the country that gave birth to it. Which thing are we doing? Usually both is what people want to do, right? Um, is it a genocide or is it plain vanilla political killing? Is Syria genocide? I don't think anyone's even argued it because it doesn't look like a genocide. It's not genocide. There's many war crimes being committed in Syria, but not that one, right? Um, are war crimes alone really heinous ones enough to get you to intervene? Probably not on legalistic grounds, but maybe if they look ugly enough, you will, right? To me, this is all a form of philanthropy. It's armed philanthropy. Right. Armed philanthropy, to me, you have an ethical obligation to the soldiers and a political obligation to the American people to make real strategy even for armed philanthropy, right? which I, don't think, I think we often do not do. So it doesn't have a place in my discussion of American national security because I don't think you do these things for American national security. You do them for other reasons. Right? And the question of sort of the expansive definition of grand strategy... I deliberately eschew expansive definitions of grand strategy. That's right. This is sort of like translating into the study of grand strategy, the pablum that this town of the last 10 years, the whole of government approach or whatever this is meant to be, right? Of course, American foreign policy can take up many questions and it could take them up with many means, right? But that's not, to me, that's not about grand strategy. To me, grand strategy is, is about thinking about what you need to do to live in a system without a sovereign 
in which anybody can do violence to anybody else, right? How much violent means should we have? And when do we need to use them? How do we need to use them and why? This is a big enough question for grand strategy. We don't need to hang all kinds of other bells and whistles on it. U.S. foreign, people who study U.S. foreign policy can study anything they want, more power to them, right? But I think we need a separate term to discuss what I wanted to discuss in this book. All right, thank you all very much. I wish we had time for more questions, uh, but we have time for lunch. Uh, again, don't think that we don't believe in a free lunch here at the Cato Institute. It just means it was paid for by someone else. It's free to you. Okay, um, so thank me and uh, join me in thanking the panelists. Thank our conference staff. Um,